I'm going to go ahead and start. I know uh, our other witness will be out in just a moment. The uh, Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, we thank all those for being here. In uh, today's hearing, we'll examine the crisis in Libya. I'd like to thank our witnesses for again appearing before the committee on this important issue. Unfortunately, six years ago, after the NATO intervention, Libya remains on the brink of civil war. Like many of its neighbors, Libya failed to transition into a stable, representative democracy hoped for by its citizens following the Arab Spring. And sadly, it's the Libyan people who have paid the price. Fighting between militias has undermined uh, internal security, weakened government institutions, and damaged the economy. It, also, it is also posing substantial risk to the U.S. and to our allies. Infighting has created a permissive environment for terrorist groups like ISIS. The organization's gains in Libya have led to U.S.-supported military operations last year in places like CERT. We've had some successes there, but the conditions allowing extremists to thrive remain. I think many of us agree that the Libyan political agreement needs to be altered as the current government lacks the power to actually govern the entire country. But that's only the beginning. Until the array of militias come under some type of central political control, no government will be able to provide essential services across the country. And even then, Libya will still face enormous challenges to fix weak government institutions and turn around a struggling economy. I look forward to our discussion today and hearing from our two witnesses on the views of the crisis and what needs to be done to bring about a, its peaceful resolution. We'd be particularly interested to hear your views on what the U.S. should do to help achieve these goals. Um, and with that, and what we should expect if ISIS or other radical groups regain ground in Libya. Again, we thank you both for being here. Ambassador, I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want you to have to hear all of my opening statements, so I went ahead and began. And with that, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I thought your opening statement was very important to be heard by all, so I just want you to know that, and I thank you very much for uh, convening this hearing on, on Libya. Uh, yesterday, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to represent this committee uh, along with Senator Graham, who was representing the Appropriations Committee, and we met with the ambassadors to the United Nations Security Council. And we had about a two-hour discussion, and I thought it was a very helpful discussion. Uh, and we talked about a whole range of issues, from North Korea to reform within the United Nations. And Ambassador Haley's doing an <coughs> incredible job of representing our interests, and I think her leadership as now the president of the Security Council for this month uh, will be important. She's focusing on the issues of reform. She's focusing on the issues of uh, North Korea uh, and uh, other areas that the United States has national security interests. But one of the issues that came up during that discussion by our friends in Europe and our friends in Africa and the Middle East is what will be America's engagement. Will America be uh, power for the values that we stand for uh, in dealing with global challenges? And that was raised by both friends in Europe and the Middle East and Africa. And I say that because I start with the fact that the United States must be engaged. It's in our national security interest to have representative governments in countries like Libya that represent all of the population. Because when we don't have uh, representative governments, what happens is it creates a void. And that void is filled by ISIS, as we've seen in northern Africa. 
It's filled by Russia, and we see now Russia's engagement in Libya, which has not been helpful. Uh, and we recognize that it's in America's national security interest to get engaged. So, uh, as you know, we have a private panel of witnesses. The, the, the uh, Trump administration has yet to be able to fill its critical positions, uh, and we are, we are still not exactly clear what his policies are in regards to Libya. I was disappointed, Mr. Chairman, in the meeting with the Prime Minister of Italy that uh, President Trump said there, I don't paraphrase it, but that, that we don't really have a role in Libya. I think we do have a role in Libya, and I think this hearing is an important indication by the Congress that we do expect a role to be played. I, I, I want to just underscore the importance of a representative, inclusive government. And uh, there's no military solution. We've seen this too, all too frequently in so many countries in that region. There's really no military solution to, to Libya. Uh, we need an inclusive government, uh, a government that represents all of the different factions. We saw, as the chairman pointed out, that under the leadership of GNA, we were able to make progress in CERT. That was important. But we also see, with Moscow's involvement, Mr. Putin's involvement, that Gen General Hefter in the eastern part of Libya is causing all types of problems for civilian control of the country and is also participating in activities that, in my mind, uh, raise to a concern about uh, human rights violations and war crimes. So th there is a role for us to play. If it's done right, we not only can have a representative government, the management of their oil resources can inure to the benefit of the people of Libya and give them a growing economy and a growing standard of living. That is our, our goal, and I think this hearing can play an important part in the Senate's oversight of that responsibility, and I look forward to hearing from our two witnesses. Well, thank you very much for those comments, and we'll now turn to our witnesses. The first witness is Dr. Fred Wayry, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you so much for being here, sir. Our second witness is Honorable Deborah Jones, U.S. Ambassador to Libya from 2013 to 2015. Thank you for bringing your expertise and knowledge. And if you'd just give your opening comments in the order I just introduced you, if you could summarize in about five minutes, we'd appreciate it. Without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. Uh, you've been here many times, so please proceed. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, Committee members, I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak with you here today about Libya's political crisis and the way forward for U.S. policy. I'm also honored to be joined by my distinguished co-panelist. For those of us who have followed Libya since the revolution, its unraveling has been harrowing to watch. Today, the UN-backed Presidency Council in Tripoli is failing in basic governance, unable to establish itself amidst feuding militias and internal paralysis. More importantly, the Council confronts an existential challenge from an Eastern faction led by General Khalifa Heftar, backed by Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and increasingly Russia. The Heftar-allied parliament in the East has refused to endorse the Presidency Council, with its key objection being the issue of control over Libya's military. Meanwhile, the country slides toward economic ruin. The surge of migrants across Libya's deserts and shores remains unchecked, and jihadist militancy, whether in the form of the Islamic State, al-Qaeda, or some new mutation, could still take root. These looming dangers, Mr. Chairman, demand immediate engagement from the United States. At the most basic level, the United States faces two imperatives. First, preventing a resurgence of terrorist activity. And second, supporting the formation of an inclusive, 
representative, stable government. On the counterterrorism front, the Libyan-led campaign in CERT uh, last summer and fall deprived the Islamic State of any real territory. The remaining Islamic State militants, estimated in the low hundreds, are currently pooling in the center, west, and south, and they may try to mount a high-visibility attack to show their continued viability. What struck me the most during my visits last year to Libyan areas afflicted by a jihadist presence, whether CERT, Benghazi, or the West, is that any traction the Islamic State got was often highly transactional. It was the result of poor governance. And this points to the importance of a broad-based approach in denying the jihadist sanctuary. Here, non-military strategies are essential. Promoting economic development, municipal governance, education, and civil society form a vital adjunct to counterterrorism tools. In the effort to identify and assist local Libyan partners to defeat terrorism, the United States must proceed carefully. Given the absence of a truly national, cohesive military, American aid to a particular armed group could upset the balance of power and cause greater factional conflict. Moving forward, the United States should only back those forces controlled by the internationally recognized government. And even this support should be limited in scope and geared towards specific threats. The second area where American diplomatic engagement is crucial is the formation of a new government. A starting point for doing this is a new Libyan-led dialogue backed by the United States with European partners and regional states. And the goal of the talk should be the amendment of the Libyan political agreement of 2015, specifically the composition of the Presidency Council. The new talk should also focus on two tracks absent in the first agreement. First, they should include the leaders of Libya's armed groups who must agree on a roadmap for building a national-level military structure. Here, an American red line must continue to be uh, the elected civilian control over the military. Proposals for military rule or a military council are hardly a recipe for enduring stability. And for most Libyans, they run counter to the values for which they fought in the 2011 revolution. Second, the talks must also set up a mechanism for the transparent distribution of oil revenues, especially to municipal authorities. Once such an agreement is in place, the United States and its allies must stand ready to assist whatever government emerges, and not just on counterterrorism. With its formal institutions gutted by years of dictatorial rule, Libya's citizens remain its greatest resource. And this is why it's so important that the United States preserve its capacity to engage directly with the Libyan people. Mr. Chairman, committee members, my travels across Libya during the past years have underscored the desperation of its plight. Yes, the Islamic State was dealt a significant blow, thanks in large measure to the sacrifices of brave Libyans. But Libya is now more polarized than ever, and the growing vacuum could breed future radicalism. Now is the time for American leadership to avert an impending collapse, safeguard American interests, and to help the country realize the early promise of its revolution. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you here today. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member, Senator Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, first my apologies as a retiree. I've never dealt with the uh, parking downtown coming in from McLean before on a Tuesday morning. Um, but it is my distinct honor to appear before you today on, on this important and vexing matter, and I am pleased to appear with a colleague uh, that I consider a real authority and one of the most honest authorities or the most honest voices on Libya 
uh, today mm. that I hear. Libya obviously has confounded and frustrated and exhausted policymakers and diplomatic practitioners alike with its stubborn resistance to the obvious political math of 1.2 million barrels of oil a day and a mere 6 million citizens. Um, caught up in the endorphins of revolution, many assumed that Libya, like, the head of, like Athena from the head of Zeus, would turn into Dubai on the Mediterranean uh, and that we could all go away. Uh, in hindsight, clearly it was wistful thinking because Libya was not, the landscape was not a tabula rasa. Libya has a history like any other place, and that history is one of fragmentation, uh, even preceding Gaddafi. Uh, what I've often said to people is that Gaddafi was not the creator of Libya's fragmentation. He certainly exploited it using the oil wealth that he uh, had in, at his disposal, and I think it's important to remember that he uh, deposed uh, King Idris without firing a shot uh, he, uh, when he came in. He used that oil wealth, much as a cartel warlord would do, to extort, to bribe, to bring into power. Actually, very disparate parts of the country. Mm. Libya has always existed, as Julius Caesar said, like Gaul. It's three separate entities, Tripolitania, Serenaica, Fezzan, with different historical and political backgrounds and which explain to us often the different influences at play to this day in each of those regions from international partners. Uh, when Gaddafi died, in effect, Libya was a mafia without a dawn. Uh, and, in, and that is the challenge that we have now. Gaddafi was gone, but his legacy remained. Understanding this backdrop is, is very important to comprehending the deep divides and political antagonisms that followed the revolution, which I concluded not long after my arrival in Tripoli in 2013, uh, was for all intents and purposes unfinished. Uh, there had been highly touted parliamentary uh, vote in 2012, in July 2012, but essentially that's the equivalent of uh, finding, uh, or you know, buying, purchasing a nib for a fountain pen that doesn't exist. There was no government behind it, and there still remains uh, no effective government behind that. Uh, I don't want to repeat a lot of what's said here. I've submitted a re rather lengthy um, uh, background notes, which I hope people will read because it contains a, a bit of a different narrative. Uh, I, uh, many people have described the lines, the splits in Libya, as somehow secular nationalist versus Islamist, others myself included, and I suspect that Dr. Wehri would agree, in, uh, viewed the situation more in terms of status quo anti-elements, some who were pro-Gaddafi, versus democratic revolutionary elements elements, some Islamist, with marginal, uh, with ideological extremists on both sides. Uh, the revolution revealed, together with true patriots, a significant number of whom were educated in the United States and elsewhere in the West, um, some, uh, and some unabashed ideologues, a number of, as uh, Dr. Wary has said, opportunistic bedfellows whose political promiscuity for material gain often blurred extinctions. Uh, I won't go into the whole um, narrative of the talks and the long talks there, but I would agree uh, with Fred, and, and as we've looked over it, that over time, as we were there observing on the ground and, and working to advance our mutual interests, that it soon became very clear to us that when we were dealing with areas that did not affect the national patrimony or the appearance of giving advantage to either military side, uh, we were able to accomplish things. On the other hand, efforts to train elite special forces and then to respond to then Prime Minister Ali Zaydan's uh, tw April 2013 appeal to G7 leaders to help him build a general purpose force were frustrated due to that competition, that fractiousness, and the lack of any unified command and control system. Interestingly, throughout, the Gaddafi-era technocrats who were entrusted with the central bank, with the national oil company, and with the Libyan Investment Authority were left largely 
largely alone to do their business, indicating to me that Libyans, in fact, did not want to disturb their wealth, their national wealth. Mm. And in fact, uh, we found that we worked pretty closely behind the scenes with them to ensure that that remained the case. Now, unfortunately, in the latter years and following the negotiations as the competition has become more fierce, uh, there have been efforts by some to create competing authorities to the dismay, I would say, of the average Libyan whose primary concern is that he or she have enough to eat, to communicate, and ideally to travel. Um, I would only say that, uh, and uh, against this background of Tripoli's political disarray, uh, uh, which was significant, Benghazi continued to suffer a spate of brazen assassinations and lawlessness. Uh, the government had, for all intents and purposes, removed itself from Benghazi uh, with, the, with the international community. And uh, this is when Khalifa Haftar first appeared uh, at the time in February, uh, February 2014, at the time of the dissolution, basically, or the agreed dissolution of the GNC, or that it would be, uh, and, and went on a television, what we always called an electron coup, calling on Libyans to rise up and join him against the illegal, unlawful GNC and corrupt. He did not stir much response in that effect. He went back underground, only reappearing in May in, ben, in uh, Benina, in Benghazi, when he uh, had declared his uh, basically vigilante war against uh, whom he, individuals he constituted uh, responsible for, uh, or he condemned as responsible for Benghazi's anarchy, blood-soaked anarchy. Um, together with this, we had, again, you know the story, the narrative of the national elections that were held in 2014. I hope you will read carefully my uh, paragraph on that, because my narrative, my understanding, and I was on the ground, was a bit different. Uh, in response to counter threats and threats of Heftar moving into Libya or into Tripoli and the uh, declaration by this time of the people on the Tobruk side that they, the dialogue was no longer necessary, uh, the, the uh, Misratan militias uh, acted preemptively and of course encircled to drive the Zintan militias out of Tripoli, uh, which meant taking them out of areas that they had conquered during the revolution. This, this was a lot, again and again and again, about booty, about revolutionary booty, people holding on to assets, whether it be the airport, the Tripoli Tower that held the Libyan Investment Authority, the Islamic Call Center that was an important uh, center under Gaddafi and later on as in terms of territory. Uh, this was why this fighting over this, lib this Zintan-occupied territory that others felt they had no uh, right to is what led to our withdrawal and led to eventual withdrawal of all uh, uh, diplomatic um, members or diplomatic institutions or uh, missions in Libya at the time. Um, I won't get into the boycott. I will offer a couple of things uh, against this chaotic background, despite uh, the political disarray. The United States, during my tenure as chief of mission, did conduct a number of missions successfully to include the capture of both Anasa Libby and Benghazi suspect Abu Qatala, while engaging credibly with all sides in the political reconciliation talks and with the support of successive Libyan governments. In other words, this is not a matter of requires us to pick and choose. Uh, Libyans were the first to assert the presence of ISIL and Daesh and Derna and to seek U.S. assistance in removing them. The Misrans were the first to draw our attention to the growing ISIL presence in Sirte, a presence reportedly accommodated by members of the Gaddafi Dam tribe who were historical enemies of the Misrans who earlier had affiliated for similarly opportunistic reasons with Ansar Sharia, another terrorist uh, group. Um, we can talk about ISIL later, but I think you've covered the, uh, the roadmap there. Let me just say in conclusion, 
uh, and we can get into the questions later, that Libya is not engaged in a traditional civil war based on intractable ideological difference. This is a war of attrition aimed at controlling, not destroying, critical infrastructure in the absence of a trusted administrator of national wealth. Historically, exhaustion, impoverishment, or physical uh, hurt have proven the prime motivators for arriving at negotiated solutions. But as long as different factions in two, uh, who thus far have been fairly evenly matched in terms of holding their turf continue to believe they can count on external support to tip the scales and avoid reaching the limits of that impoverishment, hurt, or exhaustion, intermittent low-intensity warfare will continue, contributing to human suffering, refugee flows, and penetration of Libya's vast territory by foreign fighters, Al-Qaeda, and ISIL and Daesh. This is good neither for Libya, nor for us, nor for our European partners. But any Libyan solution will require buy-in at the lowest levels, at the municipal levels, for a governing regime that ensures the equitable distribution of national wealth, in this case oil revenues, a certain degree of autonomy, including on security matters at local and regional level, levels, and the reintegration of militias and the rehabilitation of their members. It must be inclusive and allow for the return and rehabilitation of all Libyans, no matter who they supported in the, uh, the revolution. It must begin with a ceasefire monitored by the international community with Libyan acquiescence and support, as well as the gathering of heavy, heavy weapons throughout the country and continued cooperation in the war against ISIL, Daesh, and others wishing to exploit, uh, exploit Libyan territory. Libyans must agree to all of this. And I would note here if, that if no one party If we could come controls. to a conclusion here. But, okay, I will okay. conclude. Um, otherwise, uh, Libya's, let me just say, uh, civil conflict, Libya's not easy but it's a worthwhile project. There's no alternative. Um, legitimacy cannot be imposed. It must be earned. Uh, we have, Libyans have not asked us to fight their battles for them. The least we can do is support their dreams, which were inspired, frankly, by our example. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank both of our witnesses. Um, there's clearly uh, great differences between Syria and Libya. Syria has ethnic clashes that are very deep and historic, whereas Libya does not have that burden. But we saw where Russia intervened in Syria and the damage it caused by Mr. Putin's engagement in Syria, making it extremely difficult to get all sides together in a peace process, which is the ultimate answer in Syria, as it is the ultimate answer in Libya. So now we see very disturbing trends about Russia's engagement in Libya. We see where they are actively engaged in supporting Ms. General Heftar, uh, who has um, been extremely uh, difficult in recognizing a civilian government and, according to Human Rights Watch, has committed war crimes. So my question first would be, what is Russia's intentions in Libya? Why have they been able to get the cooperation of Egypt, one of our partners, in allowing the use of their, Egypt's facilities in the uh, military operations in Libya? Uh, and what is the U.S. interest in dealing with Russia's engagement in Libya? So, um, Dr. Wary, do you have some suggestions here? <clears throat> Try to help me understand. Sure. The roadmap here. Thank you. Well, again, I think it's one of Libya's saving graces that it is not Syria. So the level of, of regional interference, international interference, I think pales compares to, compared to Syria. Um, that regional interference is not simply Russia. And I would point 
to, to the Gulf states as the most harmful actors in a lot of this, stemming back to the 2011 revolution where you had two Gulf states playing out their regional rivalry on Libyan uh, soil. The Egyptian role, I think, came before Russia. The Egyptians have had long-standing uh, economic and security interests uh, uh, in Libya. They were among the first uh, backers of, of General Khalifa Hefter's Operation Dignity when it started in 2014. And indeed, when General Sisi took power in Egypt, that really was felt in, in Libya. So again, the Egyptian policy toward Libya really shifted after Sisi. Um, so again, e Egypt's well, uh, you said in your testimony that the respect for civilian controls is critical to the stability of that country. Correct. General Heftar has certainly not been helpful in that regard. Correct. So Russia seems to be siding up with General Heftar. Exactly. So enter Russia. And so, again, I think Russia's interest um, in Libya stems back to the Qaddafi era. They had enormous arms contracts. They had infrastructure projects. They explored a naval base. But, he is, but General Heftar is a, a useful ally to them. I mean, they sensed a vacuum. It's very useful for their narrative. NATO broke the country. Here comes Russia to clean it up, so to speak. Um, they are backing him reportedly with, with spare parts, with training, with medical care. They've printed currency for the Eastern government. And this is one of the alarming things about Libya, the, the parallel institutions. So this Eastern unrecognized faction has its own central bank. Russia was printing Libyan currency to help prop it up. So again, I think um, their, their role has been unhelpful. It's been uh, theatrical at times. This visit of General Heftar to the aircraft carrier was highly uh, theatrical. But the question is, can they really pull a Syria in Libya? And do they, do they want basing, or do they want to present themselves as an indispensable broker? They want to be the ones that, that, that forge a new government that is favorable to their strategic and economic interests. So if the United States were to withdraw interest in Libya, would that give a greater opening for Russia? I think so, Senator, yes. You know, and again, my conversations with Libya, with the United Nations uh, chief last week, is everyone is on edge waiting for the, for the U.S. to give a signal. And so the absence of a signal creates a freeze, it creates a vacuum, and that's an invitation yeah, I, for other powers. To and I've in. heard that also. That exact, what type of signal are they waiting for? Well, I think... Um, you know, a, a high visibility a signal about our diplomatic engagement, about our support for the, for the government. I mean, the role of, of, of special envoys from the State Department, of supporting the Europeans, I think just a more visible and vocal signal, and certainly not a signal that we're uh, washing our hands of this country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could, before I turn to Senator Johnson, I've saved time for interjections, but, I mean, a signal, I'm sorry, I... I I heard your two points on the front, and our staff was in yesterday talking about that, and I realized we were certainly very helpful in cert with what happened with ISIS. But I'm, I'm not understanding what, what that really means relative to our leadership there and, and why. I mean, I'm truly seeking an answer. I know that Italy, France, and other countries are very involved, but tell me what it is specifically that the United States should do to move towards a... Uh, a political agreement here? Again, I think just a more visible, uh, you know, support to these, to these regional initiatives, um, statements. Um, I think convening some sort of new negotiating track in tandem with the United Nations, in tandem with these regional partners, 
Um, and you know, being and, and signaling, I think, also to the Libyan people, to the Libyan political actors, that we're prepared to engage along a broad spectrum of, of initiatives um, to, to really help Libyan society, to help uh, the Libyan government. Um, I think one one bright spot, one example of what I'm talking about was when, when uh, uh, the Libyan factions moved their fighting to the south, when they started clashing south of the oil crescent, the P5 issued a statement altogether, all, all five of the P5, saying that this was bad for Libya. And that's the sort of you know, consensus where the U.S. needs to play a leading role, right. not just a, a you know, background role. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank the witnesses. Um, just in my notes, I'm seeing political disarray, uh, I, I see Libyan technocrats. Uh, do they still exist? Is there any hope of reassembling the Libyan technocrats to provide kind of that governing authority? I'll ask the ambassador. I think when it comes to the National Oil Company, to the, to the bank, and to others, there are technocrats. However, um, the political leadership is in disarray and, and needs uh, guidance and needs support. And we were able to do that as long as we were engaged with that. And I think that's important to remember. We haven't had physical presence of a diplomatic nature in Libya since we withdrew in July of 2014. That sends a huge message to the Libyans. Uh, and our, un unfortunately, obviously, for political sensitivities and the rest, um, the U.S. was very hesitant to reinsert following the second withdrawal uh, personnel into Libya worried about the paralysis that might cause at home. But in fact, we brought the Russians and the Chinese into the dialogue process. Uh, we were very actively engaged in that. And having the U.S. on board showing, signaling that it supports a political as well as a military solution is extremely important. On a purely practical note, Heftar has never, at least in my time there, and I don't think yet uh, Fred will know this, uh, controlled more than 12% of the country at any given time. It's huge. You are never going to defeat ISIS or any other group that's there unless you have cooperation across the board. If you go into supporting Heftar full-heartedly, you will have a civil war. It will turn into something existential for Libyans, I'm afraid. How many significant militias are there? How many significant groups are there competing? I would say there's thousands. I mean, this is one of the the, the, sad, the tragedies of Libya is that power is so fragmented. So it's neighborhood by neighborhood. It's town. Even within the town of Misrata, there are 100. Um, but within Tripoli, there are probably four or five. Uh, I mean, are there major ones? You know, we heard the same thing in Syria, 1,200. But, I mean, are there 10 major groups? Or is it really that... that it really uh, is that fragmented. I mean, there's talks now about, uh, with this, this track of security dialogue, of bringing in, you know, who would be the maybe... You probably could get 12 to 15 leaders of the armed groups, um, and that would get you there. So, but again, it's, it's the, the chance for spoilers to play a role is, so, is so very I mean, high. With that level of fragmentation, I mean, what role is diplomacy? I mean, you, you really do have to start with military control, Correct. I mean, somebody's going to have to control the ground militarily. Somebody's going to have to bring these fractions together. You know, in certain, I mean, in certain areas, in towns, a lot of these militias are tied to, to towns, and they have arrangements with municipal councils. So Zintan, uh, Misrata, even in the east, in, ba in Tobruk, in, in Benghazi. So there is a measure of, of control. It's negotiated control between uh, businessmen, between municipal councils. So the notion that you would have one actor unify the country through conquest is... Uh, is fanciful. I think what we need to look at is sort of growing it from the ground up. Who's going to be the countervailing force to, uh, right now, Hefter and Egypt and UAE and Russia? 
Who would be the most trusted foreign power to try and exert some level of stability and control? Foreign power? Uh, I mean, for example, wasn't Italy their primary trading partner prior to the break? Italy's the playing a huge role right now in terms of brokering uh, a dialogue. They're playing a role in, uh, in Tripoli and Misrata. They've offered help um, to the east. What kind of military well. presence does Italy have in Libya right now? Uh, I believe troops. Sorry? Does any, does any foreign power have troops there? There's a contingent of, of Italian soldiers uh, at a hospital in Misrata. There are reportedly troops in, in Tripoli doing some very low-level training. But they're of, very limited numbers, correct? Nothing, nothing to exert control, just kind of help and advice. Correct. Do, you need, do they need more? I mean, should we be encouraging European allies to step up the plate? Or, I mean, somebody's going to have to insert some kind of military power to try and get, gain control, aren't they? I don't think so, no. I mean, this is not something that Libyans, I mean, at the invitation of Libyans, this is something that needs to be agreed upon, a stabilization force under the mandate of the UN or EU, but that needs to be worked out with, with Libyans. I think, um, you know, any foreign presence, you know, could be an antibody, it could uh, play into the jihadist narrative. You know, I think what needs to happen first is the Libyans need to agree upon a, a roadmap for their military. There needs to be a plan but, for the security of Tripoli. It's in political disarray. And there's, 12, there's thousands of militias. I mean, again, I'm, I'm trying to come up, you know, what, what's it going to really take? Well, that's why the it's talks gonna re, It's going to require some kind of international coalition invited by the Libyans to try and stabilize the situation first, correct? I don't think so, no. I, I think what's happening is there are, there are talks underway, um, including a security track, to try to get these armed group actors on board for organization, for the structure, for leadership, for who gets to stay in the military, for which militias have to leave, for demobilizing the young men. A lot of these young men want to go back to jobs and schooling. So there needs to be a Libyan-led strategy for doing this. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And the Libyans are asking for that? They are, yes. I mean, those tracks Including are... Haftar? Sorry? Including Haftar? No, Haftar ha is not asking for that. Okay. Haftar has actually, is talking to the UN about a military structure. The problem, though, is that he wants to be part of this presidency council. He wants to be uh, supreme commander. So he well, that, it, it's, it's kind of reality, not a problem, isn't it? You know, I, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> because the, a problem. The, the reality is that the dispersal of heavy weapons and also the opposition to Haftar is so in deep and the Mizratans do have the capability, as we saw in July and August of 2014, they do have the command and control, and they do have the, the, the uh, sense of protecting their own turf uh, that will drive them to uh, combat this. If Heftar is in the lead, they have shown, they have said before, when we were engaged with them in dialogue, that they were prepared to in work with others in a command and control uh, system, but Heftar is restated opposition to dealing, to living with, uh, to be subordinate to civilian command creates a lot of discomfort with people, um, particularly given some of his ties and the supporters outside of Libya and uh, where people don't know what his, what the, the point is. I mean, I think that all countries the, in the Security Council were in agreement that we wanted to stable Libya, but there are other factors here. We do have friends, we do have partners, including Egypt and others, who are adamantly opposed to the notion that any Islamist group or Muslim brother group have any access to Libyan's wealth, which they believe will lead eventually to some kind of Islamist takeover and competition for their own principalities or their own governments. And so therefore, 
their objective has been to do something that stabilizes, that keeps it away, and Hefter has been a bit of a tool for them in that regard. Everyone recognizes that he has been in, a, unable to consolidate his gains uh, outside of, of the Benghazi area, essentially. And this has been going on now for three years. So I, I think unless you have, I agree with Dr. Wery, with Fred completely on this, unless you have a Libyan agreement, again, on distribution, on, on an organization that is going to ensure transparent distribution of national wealth uh, under a more localized uh, government, uh, that's, they're not going to accept anything else, and they do not want foreign troops on the ground. This is a country that was devastated during World War right. II. That's I, I got it. Thank you so much. Senator Booker. Yeah, Dr. Worry, you, you uh, write in your testimony, and I, I want to just read a portion here, so that the promotion of economic development and entrepreneurship, multi-level governance, education, and civil society is a vital adjunct uh, to traditional counterterrorism tools like intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, border control, uh, train and equip uh, and direct action. And, and you seem to describe an environment where um, ISIS is thriving in areas where there's no government, no civil society, uh, and that's they're taking advantage of the vacuum. And I, I just want to put that in the context of what it seems to be administration policy right now in reducing State Department uh, resources to build civil society. I mean, it's very, it's very shocking to me the, the sort of budget that they've outlined in, in light of what you seem to be indicating as a prescription uh, to ultimately bring stability back to Libya. Could you comment on that? Well, I agree, and, Senator. And, and, you know, where ISIS, you know, set up camp in Libya, it was these, these marginalized areas that have, had fallen off the map of, of post-revolutionary Libya. So you look at a city like Sirte, Gaddafi's hometown, um, that was brutalized and neglected after the revolution, that was lacking services, lacking governance, lacking representation. Um, there were tribes there that welcomed the Islamic State simply as protection, simply for what they, they provided. So it's very expedient. Same thing in the West. You had smugglers sort of doing deals uh, with the Islamic State because there was no local economy. Down in the South, there's absolutely no governance. This is where AQIM thrives. Um, same thing in, in Benghazi. So again, how do you deny the sanctuary? How do you fortify the, the resilience of Libyan society to, to jihadist penetration? And that's where civil society, that's where municipal governance comes in, and it's so, it's so essential. And so that's critical. That's got to be, whatever the strategy is once this administration presents one, it, it, part of that is essential that it is uh, us doing that kind of civil society um, investments and, and building that the State Department is critically able to do. I think so, Senator, and, and, you know, us, along with local partners, along with the UNDP. I went down to, to southern Libya to a town called Ubari that is an, a, a very remote town that was racked by, by tribal fighting. It's, it's really just fallen off the map. There's nothing there. But people, uh, the young people there, talked about a USAID computer center that was set up that basically connected them to, to the globe, that gave them critical you know, computer skills, and they were pointing to this. Unfortunately, the center was destroyed in fighting, but they, they, they look at that as a visible indication of U.S. commitment. And, and another thing that sort of disturbs me is that we're, uh, we're seem to be operating under a AUMF from 2001, um, and I'm just curious if you... Is, is, is our intervention, both military and I hope uh, to see more sort of civil society work, um, do you think the administration is gonna wants to continue to use the AUMF in 2001 as a, as a reason for, as a justification for their intervention militarily? And I, I'm open that to either one. Your microphone. 
pardon me, since, because I'm no longer in the government, but I am hearing from contacts on the special forces side and others that they are hearing signals that, in fact, we're essentially going to go to a hit-and-run policy in, in Libya as opposed to trying to knit together the kind of enduring solution that you're talking about. Right, but the about. agenda clearly... So, so let me, if I could, yeah, so you, what you're saying is it's going to be an ISIS-specific whack-a-mole issue. It's not going to be a, an enduring presence, which would mean the 01 AMF is operative. Is that what you're... I mean, you don't hear any plans of any long-term ground, and y'all are just saying it's unnecessary anyway. Um, uh, no, I'm I hear... nothing to that end. Right. I'm hearing... Um, what I call tactical impatience. Uh, people want to act against what they see there, um, really not considering the overall Libyan context, which is that Libyans, unlike Syrians or Iraq, don't have indigenous ISIS by and large. Right. It's opportunistic, as Dr. Wary has said, and they don't want to share their wealth uh, and will not allow. They have been the ones to okay. call, us, call ISIL out in their own country. Okay. I mean, that, that's problematic to me on a number of levels, but... I just want to jump real quick into my remaining few seconds. Um, human trafficking is a, is a serious concern in this country. Um, it, it's, uh, the IOM reported last month that migrants are being held hostage through slave markets um, uh, uh, in Libya, uh, uh, Niger, furthermore trafficking and smuggling from militias in Libya, which are, are driving the conflict there. And I, I just want to know if you have any input for us, either one, about what we should do to address this larger humanitarian crisis. Obviously, I imagine quelling the conflict, allowing this to to proliferate. But if this was a critical objective for the United States, what should we be doing? Well, first, I'm sorry to say that um, human trafficking, uh, piracy, and slavery has been part and parcel of Libya's history, even when you had a strong authoritarian government in Gaddafi, such as it was, because it's not something that they have really paid the kind of attention that the international community would like for them to pay. So again, this is one of the areas that when you have a political dialogue and you have a government that engages across the country and makes the distribution of wealth part and parcel of working against those kinds of things, replacing those activities, smuggling, which has long been the bread and butter for many Libyans, particularly in the south, but also for those uh, on, the, on the borders um, who have well, you know, brought in sub-Saharan Africans, especially, and traded them and others. Um, this is precisely the kind of thing that, is, that you can only address with civil society and with governance. Just to add to that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a symptom of Libya's economic collapse that the, that the circle of complicity in this, in this lucrative smuggling trade has really widened. So, again, down in the south, it's, it's how people, you know, make their living. Same thing in the north. Um, promoting uh, programs for alternative livelihoods down in the south. I mean, you know, fixing econ- Libya's economic crisis. But then again, be care- uh, being careful who we partner with. I mean, the, the notion of training a Libyan... Coast Guard. Who are we talking about there? Many of the Coast Guards are, are militia-run. They're, in fact, complicit with the smuggling trade. Returning these migrants to these, these horrendous uh, detention centers, and I've seen several of them, uh, is, is just simply inhumane and, and immoral. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Thank you, sir. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Ambassador, Doctor, thanks so much for your testimony here today. I, I just want to highlight the importance of the United States working on multiple fronts to defeat ISIS in, in Libya. You've spoken some to this, but um, on April 20th, President Trump, as you know, held a joint press conference with the Italian foreign minister. And at that press conference, he said he doesn't see 
a role for the United States in Libya apart from defeating Islamic State militants. And, uh, and that was actually a press conference with the uh, Prime Minister. Um, do you both agree that defeating ISIS in Libya or anywhere else for that matter is going to require the establishment of inclusive and effective governance, not just CT strikes? We, I, I do agree, Senator, absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, just as I outline in my testimony, I mean, who joins ISIS? It's, it's, it's the losers in the political order. It's, it's people that are shut out of the political process. So, you know, any, any government that excludes people on the basis of ideology or belief, those people are going to get radicalized, and it's going to increase the pool of, of terrorism. So. And that, in turn, uh, has some ramifications for... Uh, our needs to invest in uh, USAID, State Department, and, and uh, the civil society that it can help facilitate, bring to bear on some of the challenges in the region, and the municipal administration that you spoke to that are necessary to bring stability. Is that correct? Absolutely, Senator. I mean, I think one of the bright spots in Libya is the fact that municipal authorities enjoy elected legitimacy. I mean, when you go around to towns, there are certain cases where they've had success so I think one of the strategies that I'm seeing from the United Nations and, and others is going straight to those municipal authorities, um, including the budget, I mean, helping them finance themselves. What's so worrisome about the Heftar-controlled east, the areas under General Khalifa Heftar's control, is that he's replaced elected municipal officials with uniform military governors. Ambassador? No, I would, only, I would only say again that in CERT, for example, what we saw was support that was opportunistic for cert from groups who were politically opposed to the Mizratans and had nothing ideologically to do with it. It was all about competition for resources. So until you have a government that does what governments are supposed to do, which is to ensure equitable access to national resources through security, regulatory framework, rule of law, you're going to have this kind of problem in Libya. So, Ambassador, uh, my previous line of questioning was, was uh, prospective. Um, being a little retrospective here, um, let's think about the lessons learned uh, and whether there are some broader applications to the Middle East. Uh, in your prepared remarks, you note that many thought a Dubai on, on the Mediterranean would emerge following the overthrow of Gaddafi. And you comment that such an expectation was, in hi hindsight, wishful thinking. The Powell Doctrine poses eight questions we should consider before taking any sort of military action. Number six of those was whether the consequences of our action had been fully considered. This really applies to both of you, but first, Ambassador. In 2011, you, do you believe there was a failure to ask the question, what comes next? And more broadly, what broader lessons for U.S. policy in the Middle East, based on the experiences in Libya, might we draw? Senator, I do... Think, and I was not part of the decision-making process then, of course, but I do believe that it was a very different situation. Um, I think people forget that it was, in fact, the Arab League that came to us and asked us to take action to provide a no-fly zone because Gaddafi, unlike leaders in Tunisia, Egypt, and Yemen, where similar uprisings were taking place, Arab so-called Arab Spring, uprisings, uh, the leaders had, were not attacking their own populations, but whereas Gaddafi had threatened to do so, to kill those rats. And so when you had a situation like that, particularly on the hills of events like Rwanda or other things, I think politically it would have been very difficult to stand by and do nothing and watch a dictator who we had dealt with as a dictator, who had been responsible for a number of terrorist actions throughout the world, to stand by and say, well, we prefer the stability um, to supporting those who are trying to overthrow him. And, and again, remember, we were, inter we were 
speaking to people on the uh, revolutionary side, like Dr. Jabril, who presented a very articulate vision of what they could do. There was a lot of overpromising. So yes, uh, we did not understand the situation well. I will accept that. But however, I don't know that it, we would have changed or uh, that we could have known it differently because we were not involved in Libya for a long period of time as the United States. So it sounds as though the political imperative to, to intervene uh, was strong based on a number of reasons you put uh, forward some. But, but, but the planning um, w w took place in an atmosphere where we had limited information, uh, not just a uh, lack of critical thinking. It's, it sounds as though that's what you well, have said. Well, I, I think also that people were surprised. It's not that we didn't allocate resources or go in with our international partners and European partners to try to assist Libya. It's important to remember that Libyans, A, did not want uh, military, foreign military on the ground. B, they did not want a lot of foreign presence, period. What they asked for was the UN uh, mission, special mission in, in Libya, and that's what they got with Tariq Mitri, who did begin by uh, writing a white paper on uh, organizing some kind of security structure in military. I think it was only later that people on the we in the Western side realized the depth of the fragmentation, and as I said before, that the revolution was in fact unfinished because successive transitional governments in Libya proved entirely incapable of of de-arming the militias, you know, uh, rehabilitating, taking away their their areas of control, and and it was clear that they were not all that interested in having any Western groups who would have been frankly injured in the pro I mean, killed I think in the process, come in and do so. Thank you. I, I will say retrospectively, you know, we we one of the things that has occurred is the young leader of North Korea has learned that if you give up your weapons of mass destruction, um, then you likely will be taken out. And uh, we're having to deal with that dynamic right now. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and thank you both for your testimony. Uh, the government of National Accord, the proposed UN um, facilitated agreement supported by some factions, has failed to achieve broad uh, support in the country. Does that still represent the best way forward for Libya as you talk about trying to put all the factions together, is that really an avenue uh, still? Senator, I think the, the Libyan political agreement you know, really remains the touchstone, and most Libyans would agree upon that. According to a lot of polls that have been done, they still see that agreement that was signed in December 2015 as the foundation. Now, the question is what kind of political structure? So it's the government of national core, but you're talking about uh, the composition of the Presidency Council. You're talking about the, the other bodies, the State Council. That's what's being worked out. There was a five-person Presidency Council that was tremendously unwieldy, that was rife with divisions. Um, there were other sort of structural problems. And so the talks now are how do you um, revise that. But again, the key question, and this has been the sticking point, is elected civilian control over the military. And the question is, are these new negotiations a sort of covert way for General Heftar to come on to a, some sort of new council where he would be de facto, uh, you know, ruler of the country? Well, then, uh, it seems to me, if, if that's a fundamental question, what, what is it, don't we have leverage? I mean, we give Egypt an enormous amount of money. Uh, Saudis are our are, are ally. Uh, are we leveraging our relationship with those two countries vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the support they're giving Heftar and the circumstances in Libya in a way that we should be? 
You're both smiling. I don't know what that means, but in any This is one of those, uh, thank you for that question, Senator. <laughs> you know, Normally you hear that at confirmation hearings. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that question. Um, as you know, no relationship is purely bilateral. We have many uh, engagements in different areas in the region and, and the, the nature of our relationships with Egypt, with the United Arab Emirates, with Turkey, uh, with Qatar and others are deep and they're uh, multi-layered. And I think that when, in, when it comes to uh, priorities or how much, you, how much leverage you actually have in some areas, it's quite limited, you find, because what is uh, existential for others is not necessarily seen as such by us and vice versa. And so uh, I think that some of our friends have made a decision that they um, believe they live in the neighborhood and they cannot tolerate uh, what they believe we naively think is the ability to have Islamists in a government that has access to a lot of money and a, and a location. And so there are, there are ways around this, I think, building in safeguards, building in transparent systems. Uh, I mean, that we would say as Americans, you, c you have institutional ways around this. Uh, in in this these settings where institutions are not always the predominant feature, I mean they see things differently. Well, the bottom line is we we you're saying that their interests are going to trump any uh, influence that we may have over this because this we have a multi-layered interest with them, so therefore this is not at the top of their poll. I mean well, it just seems to me that we are dead. Then what, what we are resigned to. If we don't use leverage with countries that can influence the situation in Libya and continue to exacerbate the circumstances as they exist, is that what we are destined to is a continuing uh, uh, you know, internal conflict uh, and us on occasion striking ISIS targets uh, as we see it necessary. But that's a, that's a long-term proposition for failure at the end of the day. I'm not sure failure. I mean, I think that that's just the nature of U.S. international relations and diplomacy is that it's a matter of priorities and trying to influence others when your priorities don't always jive on these things. Dr. And Wade, are we're you using the them. same way? I'm sorry? Oh, no, sorry. I was acting as obvious. Yes, yes, I do. I, you know, I think the Egyptians, for instance, are in fact coming around, and so they have actually pushed for negotiations between uh, General Haftar and, and the West. And so they have an interest on their border. Um, they don't want the division of, of Libya. I don't think they want uh, military conquest of the country. So again, they have certain security interests. Um, I do think the U.S., especially this new administration, has more leverage um, since we're sending these signals to, to certain Gulf states that, you know, we have your back uh, on Iran. I think that can translate into more leverage on, on Libya. I mean, Libya is a country whose spillover affects multiple U.S. allies, perhaps even more than um, than Yemen, and yet we're not getting involved in Libya. And so I think, you know, in the, in the case of the UAE, and I'm going to call them out, I mean, their, their interference has been almost purely ideological, driven by this phobia of the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's not a recipe for a country um, that's going to be immune to terrorism. So again, I think we need to have stronger leverage with these states. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I would point out, uh, I mean, Egypt um, has uh, certainly, from a security interest standpoint, been very aligned with Israel recently. So our interest in the region are complex, and I do agree that there is some leverage right now that we haven't had in the past that uh, hopefully will be useful as we move ahead in Libya. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. 
Um, let me begin with a specific question and kind of a broader one because Libby is often pointed to as an example of a foreign policy mistake or, or what have you. And I want to revisit that for a moment. You were both keen observers of it. Obviously, the ambassador was there in the aftermath. But I want to talk about the Benghazi Defense Brigade. Um, as you know, Libya has become a terrorist safe haven and, and a veritable alphabet soup of organizations are fighting for control of the country. What are your views regarding cooperation between the Benghazi Defense Brigade and uh, elements like Al-Qaeda or AQIM? And I know that they've attempted to deny links to terrorism, but um, is it not the fact that, the, that they're a, a well-known coalition of Islamic militias and extremists? And um, so how would you characterize the BDB, and, and in particular, whether we believe that the Libyan National Army has the capability uh, to, to defeat them? The BDB at its core was formed um, by, by Islamist figures who were ejected from Benghazi. So many of them were, were leaders in Benghazi. Um, they came out, they got support from the city of, of Misrata, um, uh, from, from other sources, from Tripoli, allegedly from, from Qatar as well. Um, at its core, what the BDB is a symptom of is, is the massive displacement from Benghazi, the fact that they are fighting, um, they say, to return families to, to Benghazi, uh, many of them have families. The, the Al-Qaeda element, I mean, look, this is a, this is a small country of, of six million. If you go to any Islamist leader, chances are he's going to be, he's going to know someone in Al-Qaeda, he's going to be affiliated with Al-Qaeda. There's a six degrees of separation. Are there people that had Al-Qaeda pass in the BDB? Probably. Um, but is the group itself an Al-Qaeda affiliate or, or organization? No. Is its, is its involvement and escalation un, unhelpful? Yes. Um, and I don't think the, the, the Libyan National Army has the ability to fully defeat um, a force that, you know, could challenge it in the oil crescent. The key thing is that oil crescent is going to be a, a site of contention for years. It, it has been ever since uh, 2015, at least. Sorry, and I would only add that um, there were many who argued that when Heftar um, engaged in, in Benghazi, that, in fact, he undid the work that had been done of parsing off the extremists from the core of some of these uh, militias and, in fact, drove them all back together uh, because their sole objective came to defeat, became to defeat him instead of uh, what they had been doing before is pairing off, coming back into the national uh, grouping after the revolution and uh, marginalizing the extremists. But again, as, as Dr. Wary says, every Libyan, just about every Libyan family, it's like rebels and Yankees. They've got somebody in it that they'd rather not see at the table, um, but they admit to, and then they feel sorry when that person passes away, too. I mean, I've watched Libyans who are pro-Hefter weep over the death of Benghazi revolutionaries because they're cousins or they're some, someone else. Um, I would say the hardcore Al-Qaeda group has been in Derna, a lot of them are the affiliates, and Derna historically has been um, a kind of a refuge for people because it's cave, it's filled with caves, it's isolated, and it's easily cut off. So even when Gaddafi was there, people were there. The Christian saints used to hang out there in the fourth century and fifth century because it was so isolated. So that is, yes, a problem. Benghazi is a mix. Uh, but I think it's uh, hard to say that the whole uh, group of the revolutionaries is, a, um, is part of this problem. They drove out ISIL, by the way, from, da from Derna, a lot of them, and from Benghazi well, as well. On, on the broader question about Libya, this is what I hear from a lot of people, okay? And I'm simplifying it. Gaddafi was a really bad person, but at least he kept the country stable. He was overthrown, and now all the Islamists are there, and it's become a playground. My counter to that argument has been 
Number one, the Islamists, the jihadists, are not the people that overthrew Gaddafi. It was the Libyan people. That was driven by the Libyan people who wanted to get rid of them. He was gone one way or the other. The choice before us at the time was not whether or not Gaddafi stayed, but whether or not a vacuum would follow. Is my assessment of what happened in the, back in the beginning of this revolution accurate? And, and, and the reason why that's relevant is it is now being extrapolated to Syria and to other parts of the world. The fact of the matter is that the, that the uprising that led to the ouster of Gaddafi was not led by the radical elements uh, as much as it was by the Libyan people who didn't want to live under this lunatic criminal. I think you're absolutely right, Senator. And But what happened was that immediately following the revolution, it gets back to what we were saying before, the, the infighting over control of the nation's assets have led to these divides that are not fundamentally ideological in nature. I mean, this is a country, again, 98% of whom are Maliki Sunnis, Sunnis, Sunni Maliki school of Islam. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is who controls the wealth, and that's why I say I see it more, and I think Fred does too, in terms of status quo ante, who owned the goods versus distributive dem- democracy of people who felt that it was time now to share the wealth and also have a democratic group. Now, I think there are some who are in, indeed, uh, they're Salafists, but they're still Democrats, you know, small d Democrats. Um, there are those who are, in fact, ideologues and who are, are extremists, and they have always been there around, and they're, you know, dabbling now, fishing in very troubled waters. But at the end of the day, I still believe in my heart of hearts that this needs a political uh, that a political uh, reconciliation that that provides for equitable distribution of national wealth in a transparent way will salt will will bring people together against those narrow group of extremists. I believe that naively, perhaps, but I believe it. Thank you, sir, Senator Markey. Thank you. So, uh, so let's go to this um, diplomatic breakthrough that the Italians have made, uh, bringing together the. Um, GNA and uh, Tobruk uh, factions in um, in some kind of preliminary uh, negotiation to reach a negotiation uh, with Donald Trump saying I don't want to have any part of you know getting the United States in the middle of this but like you're saying at the end of the day a diplomatic resolution is the only way that we're going to be able to resolve these difficulties including splitting up the oil revenues or whatever, right? So it's all going to be on the table. So can you talk a little bit about this Italian initiative uh, and what hopes you may have for it to be um, a a building block to actually have a resolution uh, reached that uh, is diplomatic and not military? Senator, I I think the Italians deserve enormous credit for brokering this. I think it's a start. I'm not sure if I would hail it as a breakthrough. What it is is the head of the state council, high state council, the head of the HOR, uh, agreeing to talk, meeting for the first time. Um, You know, the question is, is what's next? And the devil's in the details. And so um, what new body emerges from this? But then, again, I have to underscore this question about who controls military force. And, And this was what led to the fighting back in, in 2014, the, the monopoly on the use of force. So, um, and the question will be, what is General Heftar's uh, willingness to engage in this, in this process um, do you as think, well? Do you think this indicates that he's willing to participate in the process, given the fact that both factions are now going to be talking? What, what do you think this portends? I honestly, I don't know, Senator. I mean, we've seen these things happen before, these initiatives, and then there's always room for spoilers 
you know, in, in Libya. So I, I just don't know at the moment what his, his stance on this is. I know the, the Algerians and the Tunisians have their own initiative um, going. I think it's encouraging that he's starting to meet with a number of high-level um, officials as well. But as I understand it in his communications with the UN, you know, he wants a, a, a seat at the table that could be the head of the table. Ms. Jones? Yeah. yeah, that was, I was just going to say that and talks in a good way, process is the opposite of, of conflict, and that's, uh, you know, so that's a good thing. However, um, the political valence of these kinds of negotiations is really thrown off um, when you have external elements, uh, you know, making promises to people or giving them added weight um, in the equation that could, that then leads to them staying out of the process, and I think that's the case with Hefta right now and with other groups, unfortunately. Um, we've done so a lot re of re reports are that that uh, Siraj is coming to the United States to meet with President Trump. Uh, and reports also are out there that Siraj is going to talk to Haftar before he comes to Washington to meet with Trump. So does that give you some reason to believe that the United States, President Trump, should play a hands-on role and not a hands-off role in terms of trying to resolve this um, uh, dispute? Of course, I think that the president can play a helpful role in that if he uh, underscores the importance of a political solution and of civilian uh, authorities over the military. Um, he's the, you know, if, he, if anyone can make a deal, I think he probably believes he can. So you're saying this is an but opportunity for President Trump to try to make a deal, that he should play a hands-on role in trying to bring these two if parties together? If it is indeed together? the case that Siraj has met with, with Haftar and is coming and to see the president, I do believe that the president um, should, should uh, offer something more than saying, uh, we're not, this is an Italian problem and we're, you know, we're going to help you militarily and that's it. Yes, Doc, I agree. Yeah, Thank you. Doctor? I, I would agree with that, and, and you know, it's not simply the deal, but it's it's what comes next. It's 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 the guarantees, it's the involvement to make the deal stick, and so that's where this this sort of whole of government approach is is so important. So we should be ready to engage beyond this this handshake, whatever handshake. But do you see this as a big moment that you have a kind of a, a number of of, of uh, events that are all kind of converging, heading towards this meeting in the White House with President Trump. Again, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I'm, I'm guardedly, you know, optimistic maybe. But again, it's, it's something that we've seen, and this is where the regional states are, are so important. You know, the role of the, of the Emirates, of Egypt, the fact that they, um, in principle, agreed to the 2015 agreement. They said yes, and, and we thought that was a breakthrough. But meanwhile, they hedged. They hedged. So the, the role of regional spoilers, and especially spoilers on the ground. So can Siraj deliver uh, the, the, the rejectionists in his camp? Are there going to be people in, in Heftar's camp that feel left out? How much control does Heftar really have? Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to both of you for being here today. Uh, and I apologize if I'm uh, asking you a repetitive question here, but uh, with the rising tension between Libya's House of Representatives and the Government of National Accord, uh, there was a report from The Guardian on March 14th that stated, and I quote, Russia appeared to have deployed special forces to an air base in western Egypt near the border. It goes on in the article to explain that U.S. and diplomatic officials have said any such Russian involvement might be part of an attempt to support the Libyan military commander uh, Khalifa Haftar. 
Could you provide any insight into involvement of Russia special forces, perhaps, in Libya and what you have seen and heard? I'm going to yield because I have no information on that. I have no information beyond what I've read, um, Senator. If, if Russia were to do that, uh, open source reports talked about the special forces deployed in Libya. What role do you think these uh, special forces, should they be there, be playing? Senator, again, I think the we, we know foreign special forces have played a role with General Heftar in the past in, in his campaign in, in Benghazi. There's been Russian offers of offers of training in Russia. There's been offers of medical help. I'm not sure what what value added those get him right now. Um, his you know his principal theater of combat is is almost over in Benghazi, save for a few neighborhoods. He hasn't shown a willingness to go after uh, the terrorists in Derna. Um, you know, so so I think the the question is: Is this a symbolic? you know, gesture, yet, yet another, you know, arrow in the quiver of Russia that they're using to sort of signal their, their involvement. So. And I guess I would follow up on that. I mean, is it then in the national security interest of the United States that a concern of our national security interest that there are Russian special forces, if they are uh, in Libya indeed? I think this is one of those where we have to be very cautious. I mean, we've had special forces in Libya. The British have had special forces in Libya. Others of the Italians, others have had. This is all a matter of common knowledge now. I'm not giving anything away. I think it all depends on what their intent is, as, as Dr. Wary says. Um, what is their purpose there? And I think a lot of it may be, again, uh, Russia putting in our face that they're there. I think we have to be careful in how we respond to it. But so far we've seen no increase in or concern of migration, refugee flows out of Libya that could jeopardize Italy, Greece, stability concern from, sorry, Senator? Is there a concern that Russian special forces or activities could uh, spur a, a refugee crisis or migration again uh, into Russia, excuse me, into uh, Greece or Italy? I don't think so, Senator. I mean, most of those migrant flows are coming up through the, the central area, the desert, the west. Um, so I, I don't think that would have any, any consequence for the, for the flow of migrants at all. Okay. And according to the 2017 U.S. AFRICOM posture statement, uh, the instability in Libya and North Africa may be the most significant near-term threat to the U.S. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that statement, how you feel about it, uh, perhaps what, uh, what your concerns are in terms of agreement with that posture statement? Um, Senator, I think the, the notion of Libya, you know, the problems in Libya spilling over is, is really profound. And so we're talking about a number of U.S. interests in the region, whether it's the success and stability of, of Tunisia, and we know that terrorists have plotted attacks on Libyan soil uh, in, for, in Tunisia, um, the security of, of U.S. ally Egypt. Um, there's huge concern about the spillover, spillover of arms and, and jihadists into the Sahel to the south. Um, so again, I think Libya is really this, this epicenter that, that affects the surrounding uh, region. Can I add, Senator, that I think it's important to remember, though, too, that particularly Tripoli and Misrata, um, have a fairly normal day-to-day -day life on the scope of, on the scale of things. I mean, what I'm saying is a lot of the refugees, as Dr. Ware has said, they're coming from other places and flowing through Libya because it's not governed properly. There's internal displacement in Libya, um, but a lot of, uh, you know, the wealthy Libyans have other places to live. But the, it's the planning that goes on there. It's the smuggling of weapons. It's the flow of these other groups that is really problematic. Uh, Libyans will point out to you that, you know, the, the 
the terrorist Ansar al-Sharia were Tunisian Ansar al-Sharia, not Libyans. Um, but that is the problem, that Libya provides a playing field, particularly in the south. On the, on the other side of that coin, though, they don't provide in the south the kind of urban centers that ISIL or Daesh typically exploit in order to, you know, to extort from people to steal oil or things like that. And we've already seen that Libyans in the central, in the city-states, are prepared to fight, uh, particularly in Misrata and in, in Tripoli, are not prepared to allow that, those kinds of inroads there. Thank you. I may have to step out for a moment and may not be here at the end. I want to thank you both for being here and for your testimony. It's been very, very helpful, and uh, we look forward to following up again uh, with questions afterwards with that, Senator Merkley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair, and I want to start by returning back to the conversation about the U.S. Inter intervention initially being requested by the Arab League to provide a no-fly zone. It, it seems like at some point, we went beyond providing a no-fly zone to really becoming the air force of the opposition. And in that transition, did we adequately, in terms of our national security analysis, evaluate the consequences of that and thoroughly understand the uh, challenge that would be faced the, the, in filling the vacuum following the demise of uh, Qaddafi's regime? Again, I wasn't part of the planning, and I think the military would have to address that as well as people in the uh, Security Council and the State Department at the time. However, um, I do believe that uh, we did not believe that there was a vacuum in the sense that we were speaking to people, uh, Libyan leaders, so-called leaders, um, some of them quite articulate, uh, you know, supporters of the revolution who I think assured people that they had that they were prepared to come in and take over and provide the kind of institutional replacement for Gaddafi that would allow them to organize the country. I don't even, th I don't think the Libyans themselves were even aware of what a mess this would become, to be honest. I would agree with that. I, I think there was this overly optimistic assessment that, that Libya would get back on its feet. I mean, a small country, oil reserves, the infrastructure wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't uh, destroyed. Um, I think there was this, this sense that, okay, we've handed this off to the, the Europeans, the United Nations, now there's Syria happening. Um, you know, and, and again, the Libyan um, role was essential here in the sense that they told us, you know, we got this as well. They didn't want a large presence um, on the ground. I think there was an excessive focus on elections as a success marker that we got to get these elections right. Meanwhile, the security piece of it is not um, addressed. So there's a lot of lessons learned here in terms of how we do this. And I'll also add the, the regional role. I mean, there were the you know, regional states um, had their own security plans for Tripoli. They were, had their own proxies. They had their own allies. And they were doing things on the ground that were ultimately unhelpful for unity later on. I do think it's something we should keep in mind as situations arise around the world. We had very articulate spokespersons in Iraq who assured us that there would, would be a following Saddam Hussein, no, no challenge uh, there in terms of the transition, and uh, those individuals will always exist. But when there's a long-term dictator, uh, if it's uh, Tito, if it's Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, uh, the transition can be extraordinarily difficult afterwards. And I just feel like we, uh, we should give that full analysis. I want to turn to the nonproliferation side. 
Uh, following uh, uh, Pan Am 103, years of negotiations with Libya, Libya decides to try to rectify that. Out of those negotiations comes a lot of conversations that also address their, their nuclear program. Uh, Bush had um, uh, said that Qaddafi, um, if he followed through on his plans to dismantle his nuclear program, could regain a secure and respected place among nations and uh, then uh, touted this example as uh, I hope other leaders will find an example in Libya's action. There were 10 nuclear-related sites that were addressed. At the time that we were considering Libya, I asked the administration what message this sent to Iran and to North Korea. And they were extremely dismissive that there was any, any, any reverberations in terms of how world leaders would perceive uh, Qaddafi's vulnerability following the uh, uh, agreement to dismantle his nuclear program. Uh, I think that was a tremendous uh, uh, diminishment of a potential message being sent to other countries we were, were working on. I just want to get your all's sense on, on that particular point. Senator, again, um, these are probably questions uh, better directed to people like Bill Burns who were engaged in those negotiations back in the day um, with Gaddafi. But I would um, also say that I think there was a sense at the time, um, and this again, I'm out of my lane on this, but th there was a lot of discussion with Saif al-Islam, Gaddafi's son, and there was a lot of talk, which, and Saif was very close to Mahmoud Jabril, who ended up leading part of the revolution and, and the head of the first transitional national council that, that led the government afterwards, where Libya was actually talking and doing, looking at reforms and looking at economic reforms and opening up in certain ways. And I suspect that there was a, an element of hope um, first, there was the concern that it's never a good thing for the United States to not talk to large, centrally placed, strategically placed countries that have a devastating, can have a, a dangerous impact on the rest of the region. But two, that um, Libya was at a point where there, we might be seeing the openings of some sort of transition um, to a op more open system, more economically vibrant, something that we would find ways to influence later on. Um, Obviously, the Libyan people uh, didn't feel the same way when it came to 2011. The question I'm really asking is in the context of uh, our, the role that we and other nations played in dismantling the Qaddafi regime and the message that that sent both to North Korea and to Iran. Well, I can't, I can't speak for the leaders of North Korea and Korea. I mean, I, I, I could probably speak more to the thinking of the Iranians because it strikes me they have a far more rational system of governance than the Koreans do. But, I mean, I, obviously they're weighing their own survival success in that. But very different situations, I think, and circumstances. But I'm not qualified to address that here. I would just echo that, Senator. I, I think it's very different contexts. Again, North Korea, Iran, totally different strategic context, histories, traditions, so I just don't know what, what lessons they took from that. Okay, I'll, I, I just find it a bit of a dodge, really, at a time we're trying to persuade other countries to dismantle their nuclear programs, to, to not recognize that dismantling a nation that gave up their nuclear program would be seriously, uh, uh, that other countries would pay very serious attention to, to, that, to that. And uh, so I... Uh, you know, I don't really accept that you're not all qualified to address the, the, the question. I think you're being very tactful and polite. But Senator, can I, can I just add the notion of dismantling, you know, you, the U.S. dismantling a country? I, I don't think that's... What, what happened was there was a, you know, failing government 
in Libya that was unable to meet the needs of its people. And the reform project was dead by 2010, and there were serious problems. You had an uprising that was, you know, that, that was I didn't multilateral. To, so, I didn't yeah. refer to dismantling the nation. I referred to Libya dismantling their nuclear program. But you were talking about the 2011, that the, the result of that was he didn't have uh, the ability to deter the, the, you know, the, the uprising, I mean, the intervention, or that this led to his downfall. Is that, that's the lesson that he didn't have I'm any really safeguards. I'm really talking about the message that it sent to have worked with the nation to have them forego their nuclear program, dismantle their nuclear program, a nuclear weapon program, uh, and then be vulnerable to outside intervention. Uh, that, is, that is kind of the core issue that drives a lot of nations like North Korea and Iran to want to secure uh, a nuclear weapon, is to say it, it kind of gives them a bit of a guarantee. Our actions against, in regards to North Korea would probably be very different if they didn't already have uh, nuclear, nuclear weapons in existence. With all, with all respect, Senator, and I'm really not trying to dodge, but I think that the, a similar situation would only be if the North Korean people themselves were rising up against their leader and being slaughtered. I haven't described it as a, as a similar situation, so I think that's a, but I mean, a changing I, the context. Right, but I think that that's what makes it difficult to say because, again, the United States and the, the international community's choice was, uh, yes, maybe they're taking a message from this. Would, would Gaddafi have used nuclear weapons on his own people? I'm not so sure. And, and frankly, having participated in the, in the uh, final destruction of the uh, precursors for chemical weapons, I, you know, I'm pretty glad that we actually went in there and, and were able to clean up a lot of that stuff because the last thing you want is to have it in the hands of the, you know, the, the militias or other groups now. So I don't know. Well, uh, on that point, we do, do, we do agree. Uh, thank you. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our panelists. I'm sorry, I was at a hearing on North Korea, so I'm sorry to be late and miss your testimony, which um, certainly is another threat facing the United States. I wonder um, if either of you could speak to, and again, I apologize if some of these questions have been answered, but can you speak to the current status of the government of national accord? My understanding is that um, while they haven't been able to govern very well, that they do seem to still have support from a lot of Libyans. Is that the case, and how long would we expect that to continue if the current chaos um, extends for an, a long period of time? I think, again, the, the support from Libyans is for this, this agreement. And so there's, there is tremendous, and I was in Libya last year, and, and you, know, you sense it in the capital. There's tremendous frustration with the government in Tripoli, with the government of National Corps, with the Presidency Council. They're not able to meet people's basic needs. I mean, long lines in front of the banks, rolling electricity uh, blackouts. Um, they haven't been able to get their budget under control. There's a dispute with the central bank. They, they really don't control security um, in the capital. These militia uh, flare-ups happen and people are diving for cover. So there is a sense that something needs to be renegotiated. But again, I think the foundational um, accord still sticks, and I think a, a lot of Libyans recognize that. You better not jump into the darkness unless you've got something to replace this. And so are you optimistic that there might be progress as a result of the discussions in Rome and um, the potential, what appears to be maybe they're getting close to a compromise agreement? Is that something that is promising that may offer some hope for people? Um, I would agree, Senator, with uh, Dr. Wary that people don't want to throw out 
the baby with the bathwater in this case. And the fact that the international community and the United Nations endorsed this agreement and supported it uh, after a long time, it took a long time, and in the process, Libyans actually learned a lot about political dialogue. They, they were, it was a politically illiterate country in so many ways, and having been part of that process for those years, I saw this firsthand. So I, so I think, again, they want to modify, they want to extend. They would like to see, I, my sense is, and what I hear from Libyans, uh, they would like to see a final integration uh, between the House of Representatives with, a, with an authority that's not overly overwhelming. They don't want a strong central authority, again, like Gaddafi. They don't want a dictator, but they'd like to see a unified authority, and they would like to see General Hefter under the civilian authority, uh, or even marginalized, quite frankly. A lot of people would like to see him in some kind of honorary role on the outside, promoted up and out, as it were. Um, but, but Libyans want stability, they want predictability, and they want their economy to go again. That's what they really want. Um, and so what about the discussions in Rome? Are they really making progress? You know, I'm not privy to a lot of the details of that right now. I think discussion is already better than the opposite. Um, but we've seen, as Dr. Wery said before you came in, Senator, we've seen a lot of discussions in the past. Libyans are very good at talking and throwing chaff and then going back and fragmenting even more so that you come back with a whole new ball game. But I think at least it's a step. And the Italians do know Libya very, very well. And Libyans I have spoken to do believe that the Italians are taking the correct approach. I will say that. And how concerned are you that the United States seems to be missing from the discussions and from a leadership role right now and what's going on? Very. Um, and what does that mean as we look as you talked about the economy of Libya and how people want to see the economy going again. And as they're beginning to get their oil reserves producing again, and we're looking at other nations coming in, uh, Russia, um, I assume China, to come in and provide assistance with those oil reserves. What does that mean for the United States in the future? Uh, I'll say only that if the perception becomes and spreads that the only time the United States was interested in post-revolutionary Libya was when we thought we could make a lot of deals and make a lot of money, and the minute that it became difficult, we pulled out and focused solely on military instead of what we believe as Americans or claim to believe, uh, uh, you know, the four freedoms, the principles of those, then we have a problem. So you would both like to see the United States take more of a leadership role there? That's a question. Um, I think we, sh we need to be present, and we need to make clear what our vision is. I think that we have very successfully, Libya was one of these first situations, certainly in my 34-year career, where it was a bilateral assignment as ambassador, but it was a multilateral process throughout, where we were supporting, buttressing UN positions, but also having to work and coordinate very closely with um, Security Council permanent representative allies and our other allies across the board, and, and deal with regional powers and parties as well. So Libya's multi-faction, you know, it's got many, many parties in it. The U.S. needs to play a, a signature role and a, and, a, and a very important symbolic role there, certainly. And then it needs to be met. Presence matters. Our presence matters. Our absence sends a message. Dr. Rary, do you agree with that? 
Completely. I mean, that was a great characterization. Again, it's not us, you know, leading the charge on this, but but playing a coordinating function, and, and we're sort of the, in many sense, sort of the glue that keeps it together with many of these different players, the leverage with regional states, relationships with the Europeans. So, I, again, just being present um, at the table is 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 so essential. And and again, just to echo from my conversations on the ground with Libyans across the country, whether the South, Benghazi, I mean, this notion that that were there simply for counterterrorism, you know, um, or, or were there for the oil. This, these narratives are out there. So these, these visible initiatives that signal that we do care about um, the Libyan people, about progress, are, are so important. Well, and just, I know I'm over my time, Mr. Chairman, but in terms of, as we look at the future of Africa, North Africa, and the Middle East, I mean, don't we have to include Libya as part of whatever strategy we come up with with respect to this region? A simple one, yes, uh, because Libya of many of the states has the potential again to be a resource and and a, and a really a, an important boundary for uh, a lot of Africa. It, it should be a major tourist area for Europe. I mean, with five World Heritage sites, and it's beautiful and great fish and all these things. Uh, it should be a major medical uh, center for Sub-Saharan Africa and other places around. It should be, be a place of universities. It has a history, it has a presence, it has a place, and it's really close. It's, as I tell people, it's closer to Rome than Mecca. Um, it's closer to, you know, Libya is actually closer to some parts of Italy than it is to, <laughs> You know, it's other Arab, I mean, right. it's neighbors, uh, so are the capitals. So it, it is important. It cannot be dismissed because it's not just Libya. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your questions. Um, let me just ask one or two questions, if I might. Um, the commander of the U.S. Africa Command, General Walheiser, before the Armed Services, Senate Armed Services Committee on March 9th, warned that Libya, we must be carefully choose where and with whom we work in order to counter ISIS and not shift the balance between factions and risks sparking greater conflict in Libya. So what lessons have we learned from the CERT campaign last year that should guide us in any of our uh, operations that we support in Libya today? I'll say very briefly, Fred's been there more recently. It was our policy prescription back in March of 2015 that the only way that we could defeat Daesh or ISIL in Libya was to partner across the board. Because of the land mass of Libya and the current you know, fragmentation right now, we can't choose one partner. And I think at the time the chairman agreed of, uh, that we anyone who shared our views on ISIS and Daesh could be a partner with us in this fight in Libya to, to deny them any toehold in that country. And to do so, you have to partner with like-minded or with people who share your views on Daesh and ISIL. Uh, and we found those partners across the board. We worked and we found them. Um, so that has been, I think it's been successful in that regard. I would just add to that. Senator, and I was there in CERT last summer. Again, the, the, the very loose constellation of militias that attacked CERT and drive, drove out the Islamic State were, were in fact tied to the, general, the government of national accord, but only very loosely, um, very loosely. And some of them were opposed to it, and they've now turned on that government. So again, we did form a partnership, but it, I think it was a very limited and target-specific partnership where we assisted them on a, on a specific you know, geographic threat. Now, we're not talking about 
you know, training militias, you know, opening up, you know, writing them a blank check, giving them aid, because that could really upset the factional balance. And that was what was mentioned in the testimony, that if we, if we side with one faction against terrorism, that could cause the other faction, you know, to, to go against us, to turn to another regional patron. So there's all sorts of second and third order effects of this. And we've seen this also in the East, where certain countries were giving support to the LNA, which was an unrecognized force, and that had a political effect on our negotiations. Um, if the head of the President's Council, Mr. Shiraj, actually comes to Washington, if that were to take place, as there are some rumors, I want to follow up on Chairman Corker's uh, follow-up to my question. What should the United States expect in deliverables from the leader of the President's Council, if he were to come to the United States, as a prerequisite for a visit here in America. Mr. Chairman, I was going to turn that around and say my advice to Mr. Siraj would be that he needs to come prepared uh, to firmly articulate what he's prepared, I mean, what, what he needs, one, but also what, what he can do right now, what the situation is, but what he's prepared to do as well in terms of either compromise or political deal-making or what have you to bring things to closure. But uh, so often we find that when the Libyans come, again, due to this kind of what I call a political immaturity in a way, um, they are kind of looking for someone else to tell them what to do, and then they want to bicker with it. You know, then they want to quibble with it. They can't do this. They can't do that. So he needs to come with a, a clear, articulate vision of where he sees the process going. He should be prepared to lay out what the Italian uh, dialogue is producing, and he should be prepared to put out their de minimis, their red line, you know, what their, their minimum standards are for any kind of compromise or for expanding... Uh, and also revising the agreement, I think. Um, the U.S. shouldn't be put in a position of having to offer something larger, but he should be able to articulate what it is they need to do. So he should come with a specific game plan. Is there something more we could expect from that type of a high visible opportunity? Unfortunately, I think he's he's not in a position of strength, to, you know, to really deliver. You know, so again, it has to be okay. This visit happens within the context of a broader consensus that includes other players, that includes the HOR, the State Council. So it's not simply the visit alone. You know, he may ask for a million things. We've seen these visits before, but then they go back. They can't execute the programs. They can't write the check for them. We've seen this movie before. So again, I mean, he we need to demand when he comes that. You know, who's on board with this project? What's the consensus? What's the roadmap? Thank you. Listen, this has been very informative, and, and uh, we appreciate your insights and hope the upcoming visits uh, do create some opportunities for us. But uh, we thank you both for sharing your deep knowledge of the situation. Um, we will keep the record open until the close of business on Thursday, and I know both of you have busy lives, but if you could respond to questions fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you back here in the near future. And again, thank you very much for your testimony. The meeting's adjourned.